So now would be time for you to just give a loud and boisterous welcome to Bill Arnold. So. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the show. I can see there's a few open seats, which means not everyone made it through the metal detector. But uh, <laughs> most of you did. So this is terrific. Um, my friend Jeff Verdorn is our guest tonight. And there's many things I admire. Thank you. There's many things I admire about him. He is kind and generous and studies scripture nonstop, wanting only to be fully equipped to do the work God has called him to do. Um, and just because I admire him doesn't mean I like him. Um, but, you do. but it turns out I do really like him, too. Um, he has helped me over the years of friendship sort through a lot of challenging and hard-to-understand parts of Scripture. So let's uh, please welcome Jeff now with that kind of applause people do at golf tournaments. <laughs> softer, softer. Jeff, welcome. Hi, Bill. Let's talk about parables tonight. It's interesting, when Jesus would in, uh, talk to people, he wouldn't use systematic theology, he would use parables, mm -hmm. wouldn't he? He often did. It's, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I would like to say right up front is, this all came about because of Bill. He, uh, he came to me a few months back and said, hey, let's do a show and let's do it all on parables. And it sent me into a few months study on all the parables of the Bible, because like a lot of people, I had found that many of the parables were a little bit confusing, right? They're supposed to be these stories with a simple meaning, but sometimes the parables are some of the hardest things to really understand. And when I jumped into that, that's exactly what I found. So tonight we're going to take some, maybe some common traditional understandings of parables and turn them on their heads a little bit. And I want to love to hear what you guys think about it. So, um, but yes. Well, let's get started. What is a parable? Start so a there. parable... A parable is basically, uh, when you think about symbolic language in Scripture, there's lots of symbolic language. So you have similes, and we know what a simile is. It's usually a comparison using as or like. So people say, you're crazy as a fox. You know, you're strong as a ox or bull. Okay, I, I, I was going to say ox, but... Uh, and then there's metaphors. A metaphor is also a comparison that people use, uh, uh, using something common to describe something, but not using as or like. So some metaphors would be, my brother is boiling mad, for example. Um, and then a parable is simply a metaphor that is extended and typically in a story format, right? So we all are familiar with a lot of parables like the tortoise and the hare, you know, slow and steady wins the race. Uh, some commentators, and I kind of like this description, will say that biblical parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. So one of the things that we will do when, when we're looking at some of the parables tonight is look for, and one of my principles of understanding parables, because if we're going to start studying parables, we better have kind of a set of principles, and we'll talk about those in a minute. Uh, but we want to, we, we, th that's, I think, the key. So a parable is a story with one kind of main thought or main principle that's trying to be communicated. So we'll look at that tonight. All right, let's jump into the first parable we're going to talk about tonight. Well, the first parable that we're going to talk about tonight is the first parable in the Bible. All right? So when we do, when we look at parables, uh, just two more things. One of the principles that we need to understand when we look at a parable is we need to understand the context. So a lot of the times... Um, the parable is res in response to maybe a question or a comment, or even uh, there's one parable where it says Jesus, knowing their th this guy's thoughts, you know, responded to him with a parable. So uh, we need to understand the context specifically. We need to understand what the main point is. We need to understand uh, that these are metaphors, and we got to make sure we don't try to carry a metaphor too far and extend a metaphor too far. What I mean by that is a lot of times some of these parables, people will look for uh, meanings in all the little things of a parable and all the little details, and sometimes I think that's trying to take a parable or a metaphor too far. And then finally, we don't want to send doctrine by a parable. And when you think about it, that may sound kind of odd at first, but we want to take... When Jesus was teaching in the parables, the people that were listening did not have the full understanding of the entire New Testament that we, you and I do. So we have all of the clear teaching of the New Testament that we can know and understand and bring to our understanding of parables. You see what I'm saying? So the first parable in the Bible, when I first started looking, there's lots of different lists of parables. Um, everybody has their own. 
Uh, some, they're a little bit different here and there, but the first pair of the Bible is this, new cloth in an old coat and new wine in an old wineskin in Matthew chapter 9. So it says this, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making it tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine in old wineskins. If they do, the skin will burst, the wine will run out, and wine skins, the wineskin will be ruined, right? So what's the picture? The picture, the context is first century garments. If you got a hole in it and you sewed a patch on it, an unshrunk patch on it, that cloth would shrink way down, a lot more than your non-shrink fabrics today would, right? And it would pull and tear at that garment, so nobody would do that. You'd put an, a used patch or a, an old patch on an old garment. So too with wine. Wine ferments. So when you put wine into a, a, a leather pouch, if you will, a container, as it ferments, it will expand. Well, once that is is that once that wine skin is all stretched out, if you put more wine into it and it ferments, it's going to do what? It's going to burst. So you can't mix, basically, here's the meaning now, you can't mix the old and the new. Well, what's the main thing in Scripture that's old and what's the main thing that's new? And I think this Scripture is all about the first one. Jesus is basically telling his followers, I know you had this old way, this old covenant of the law, right? Moses received the law from uh, God on Mount Sinai, and that's what Israel had been living for for hundreds and hundreds of years. But Jesus came not to, to tell people to live by the law, but to live by faith in this new system that he is going to bring by grace. Now, we see that in passages like Hebrews 7, the former regulation has been set aside because it was weak and useless. Romans 8 says, for what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of man to be a sin offering. And Acts 13 says, through him who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from the law of Moses. We know that the law made nothing righteous, right? And through, but through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, we can be made righteous. We can be made born again. So I think the simple meaning to this parable, the first parable in the Bible is, I know there was an old way. Uh, things are going to change now. We've got a new way. It's called grace, right? Through faith in Christ. That's exactly what I would have said. So yeah. That's good. Yeah. All right, let's keep going. How about the kingdom parables? We hear that a lot. We hear the kingdom of heaven is like. We hear that a lot in scripture. We do. So there's a number of parables that start exactly like that. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. So a couple thoughts first on the kingdom, because in Christendom, um, there are big hunks of Christianity that believe that we're in the kingdom right now, right? That when Jesus went up to heaven, he established his kingdom, and we're in the kingdom right now. And how long does scripture say this kingdom was going to be on earth? Well, Revelation says it was going to be a thousand years, right? Well, it's been 2,000 years since Christ ascended up into heaven. But even despite that, open up a newspaper any day of the week and read what the newspaper says is going on in this world. Does this look anything like the kingdom of God on earth? Now, let me give you a couple examples of some passages where it describes the kingdom of God. In Isaiah, it says, the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the, the lion will eat straw like an oxen and the child will lead them all. Men will beat their weapons into plowshares and there'll be peace on earth. Is that happening right now? It says that if you die before a hundred, you'll be considered a curse. So during this kingdom that is coming, People will live longer lives in some way, shape, or form. The animal kingdom is going to change. The curse is going to be, it's not actually fully lifted yet. That doesn't happen until the new heaven and new earth, right? But the kingdom will be much different than what we're in right now. So clearly, we're not in the kingdom. So, But it is near. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is near. That's because he was from the kingdom of heaven, right? So he was from there. It's advancing so we'll see a couple parables specifically about the, the yeast and the mustard seed where the kingdom is advancing. He said, the kingdom is not of this world. He said to Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world. Now here's another aspect to the kingdom that I think we tend to miss a little bit. Who's the prince of this world right now? And that's the enemy. That's right. In fact, 1 John 5 says that the whole world is in control of the evil one. Wow. So we're not in the kingdom of God yet. And by the way, the, the last point is, is the kingdom is not here yet, but it's yet future. 
That's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I'm a firm believer that we are not in the kingdom right now, but the kingdom is yet future. And that's exactly what, when you read the back of the book, Jesus comes back, he establishes peace on earth, and his kingdom will then begin for a thousand years. So I guess the last point is, how do you get into the kingdom of heaven? And that is simply a matter of righteousness, right? The righteous shall inherit the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5 says. And uh, so you need to be righteous to enter the kingdom of heaven. So some will be righteous and will enter into the kingdom. And we also see in scripture in many, many places that there are others who are not righteous and will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a kind of a big lie in the world. It's not actually not a new lie, but some kind of nationally known folks have written some books and have made it kind of popular again, this idea of universalism, that everybody will end up in heaven. Well, you don't have to get into scripture too deep to start seeing, and we'll see it tonight. There's two roads, there's two gates, there's two ways, there's sheep and goats and wheats and tares, and there's two destiny for people. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. So there's some notes or some thoughts on the kingdom of heaven before we uh, jump into the first one. Um, so what's the first kingdom parable? The kingdom of heaven, he told them another parable, Matthew 13, the parable of the mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of the seeds of the garden, yet it grows and it's the largest garden plant and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. So warning, don't mix your metaphors here. We see seeds in a number of places, right? Um, we also see things like if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, right? We're not talking about faith. We're talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed in this parable, right? So what's the interpretation I, once again, I think this one is simple. I think the smallest seed of the garden grows to be the largest tree in the garden. Now, it doesn't say the largest tree, right? We know there's other kinds of trees that are larger, but it's the largest of the garden plants. It grows to be about 20 or 30 feet tall, and birds come in. Now, it's fascinating to me because here's one of these things where you're trying to extend the symbolism maybe a little bit too far. I read a number of commentaries that would try to define what those birds are. And because birds are kind of mentioned in an evil way in the Old Testament, some want to say that the birds represent evil coming into the church or false teaching or whatever. And I, I, I think it just means that bird come and nests in these trees because it provides shelter and protection. And that's all it means, right? But how is the kingdom advancing? We started with one guy from heaven. He came down from heaven and he got 12, 12 young men some of them fishermen, right? And for three years, he taught them and trained them, and more were added to the numbers. We see in Acts right away, 3,000 were added to their numbers that day, right? And then it went from Jerusalem to Judea and then to the ends of the earth. And now today, we have mm, maybe a billion Christians in the world or, you know, whatever it is. It's advancing, right? And I think that's the simple message with the mustard seed. Love it. All right, how about the parable of the yeast? The yeast, I think, is, again, another simple little kingdom of heaven is like story, right? We know that if you put yeast in a batch of dough, it will work through the whole batch, right? We know that, and that's exactly what the parable says. And what's going to happen with the kingdom of God? It is going to advance, and eventually, right, once Christ returns, the earth will be full of his knowledge, and he will rule the entire earth during this millennial reign, right? We're not there yet, obviously, um, but the yeast will work through it. Now, again, warning on this one, don't mix your metaphors, because yeast in other places, is it good or bad in other places? There are some places where it's described as being bad, right? So we have things like, don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough in 1 Corinthians 5? Well, that's like the same picture, but in that case, Paul is saying a little bit of sin works through the whole batch of dough. Also in Mark 8, he says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. Do you think that's good or bad? That one's bad too. That's the false teaching of the Pharisees. And then uh, in Galatians, Paul says a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. He says it again. This time he's referring to the law. He's basically saying a little law 
ruins the whole batch of grace in the context of that. And so, once again, don't be careful not to mix your metaphors. Let me know if you need me at all. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm here if you need me. Well, does that sound good? That sounds fantastic. Okay, no, I'm okay. a big fan. Good, yeah. good, good. All right, we move on to the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the fine pearl. Oh, I like these. I like this one too. This is one that I've always struggled with, right? So let's, do, let's kind of do these two together here. And we'll just read them quick. So Matthew 13, 44, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and he bought the field, right? Where the treasure was hidden. And the parable of the pearl says this, the next verse. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went and sold everything he had and bought it, right? So we all know the traditional kind of interpretation of this parable, right? Is that the kingdom of heaven is so valuable, like a treasure or a fine pearl, that we should be willing to sell everything we have and buy the pearl because it's that valuable, right? Or buy the land where the treasure is hidden. Now, let me ask you a simple question. Can you buy your way into the kingdom of heaven? No. No. But that's how it's always taught, right? Sometimes it's kind of taught, well, we should be willing to give up everything in order to receive the kingdom of heaven. Is it a requirement in the rest of the New Testament for you to give up everything that you have in order to get into the kingdom of heaven? No. We get into the kingdom of heaven by faith, right? Pure and simple. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is by grace we have been saved through faith. Faith is how we get into the kingdom of heaven. So what is this parable talking about? What do you mean we have to sell everything in order to get into the kingdom of heaven? Well, let's... Hmm. Don't look at me. <laughs> let's turn this one on its head for a second, all right? What if we're not the merchant who is going out to buy fine pearls? What if Christ is the merchant who gives up everything to buy, what does Christ buy? Oh, men, Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll. The you here is Jesus, right? From the, uh, and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood, you purchased for God persons, men from every tribe and language and people and nation. God has purchased Christ by with but when what's the price? Christ's blood. This is what redemption is all about. Christ paid for the sins of the world on the cross with his life, right? That now all of a sudden you go, well, wait a minute. He's bought find this, so that makes us pearls, right? Your pearl. That makes us the fine pearls, and it's Christ the one who has bought us. Now watch the treasure. Watch the treasure, because I think this is the same thing, but a little bit different, because I think it has to do with Israel in this specific case. Exodus 19 says that out of all the nations of the earth, Israel will be God's treasured possession. Ooh. Now, there is a future salvation for Israel. We, we've actually talked about this on your show a couple times. You know, Romans 11 says that all Israel will be saved. When Jesus returns, he saves the nation of Israel, the remnant of the nation of Israel, and they will enter into the millennial reign. This goes back to the promise God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that said, you will never cease to be a nation before me, and you and your descendants after you will possess this land for how long? Forever, right? So there is a future salvation coming for Israel. But Israel rejected the Messiah when he first came, right? So what happened to Israel? They were dispersed out of the land of Israel into the world and hidden. If this was us buying the land, right, from the guy, if you find a treasure in a guy's land and then you go and hide it again and then go buy the field, isn't that fraud? Is the parable really telling us that we fraudulently can buy something to get into the kingdom of heaven? No, but if the treasure is Israel... 
and it's Christ who purchased them and hides them out into the land for 2,000 years. Israel was hidden in the what's called the diaspora, the dispersion of Israel, right? Yet they retained their natural national heritage as a people group for 2,000 years, unheard of anywhere else in the world, that a people group could retain their national identity for that long, not being in their own country, right? So that dispersion, they were hidden. Who does the, then do that make the landowner? The prince of this world, the god of this age. That's the enemy, that's Satan. So he hides Israel until the time that they would be purchased and brought into salvation. Doesn't that make a lot more sense that we don't buy into the kingdom, but the kingdom, the king bought us. So I just take those two and flip them on their heads a little bit. Anybody feel lost? Uh, that one? Now, okay, good. No one. Really quick, one comment from a from a commentary um, about this concept that man man doesn't buy Christ, but Christ buys man. It's uh, by a guy by the name of G. Campbell Morgan uh, in a book, The Parables of Our Lord, from 1943. Brian, I think this is the book that you you gave me. A friend of mine gave me this book, and it says about this parable and the hymn, you know the hymn, I found the pearl of greatest price, right? That's a hymn. And he says this, it was a very beautiful hymn, but quite untrue to the teaching of this parable, right? So this is not a new understanding of this parable. People have understood this parable this way for a long time. Wow, that's very interesting. I love it. All right, let's go to the parable of the unmerciful servant. And just to let everyone know, if you've got questions, we're going to do a little Q&A. So if you have questions about anything you've heard or anything you want Jeff to clarify, save that for the Q&A time. All right. So the unmerciful servant is Matthew uh, 18. And this is a longer one, so I can't read the whole thing. So I'll, I'll just kind of paraphrase through so that everybody kind of jogs your memory of which this parable is about. So it says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him, but he was not able to pay. Uh, so he falls on his knee knees and says, you know, I beg you, forgive my debt. The, servant master took, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt. Okay, so the, this first servant, his debt was canceled, right? All right, key. And let him go. But then the servant goes out and he finds another guy that owes him, him some money, right? Now, does, is he forgiving? Does he forgive the other guy's debt? No, he doesn't, right? And so the master finds him and says, you wicked servant. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in an anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. All right. So now the traditional interpretation often goes that this servant whose debt was canceled at the beginning is a believer who had been saved, whose debt had been forgiven, right? And he now goes out, but then is unforgiving to others. And so somehow he then, even though he's saved, you know, someone in the church is now called wicked by the master and he's turned over to the jailer. And I look at that kind of common interpretation, I go, wait a minute here. Would Jesus ever call a true born-again believer wicked? Would Je this, is, this goes to one of my favorites. We did it last time on your show about would Jesus ever spit a true believer out of his mouth? Remember the lukewarm thing? We don't have time to do it here. But the answer is no. He would never call a true believer wicked. He would never spit a true believer in him out of his mouth. He would never cut a true believer off from the true vine, right? And these are commonly taught that way. I'm a firm believer in one of my strongest doctrines that I love to teach on is the assurance of salvation. That once you're born again, you're born again for how long? Forever. That's right. And, and Scripture declares this truth over and over and over again. He's given you the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1 says, as a, as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance until the day of Christ Jesus. Romans 8 says that nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, right? So once you're, you receive the Holy Spirit and he will be with you forever, right? As a, my old pastor used to say, if you could lose your eternal life, 
then your eternal life was something just short of eternal now, wasn't it? All right? So I'm a firm believer in that. So it can't be that this guy was once saved and then is unforgiving and then somehow loses his salvation. If you recall the Sermon on the Mount, this is like Matthew uh, 6 where Jesus says, but if you do not forgive men of your sins, their heavenly, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. How many of you have been kind of troubled by that verse over the years? Where it's like, okay, if I'm not forgiving, suddenly I'm going to enter some kind of unforgiven state, right, as a believer. But we know the New Testament reality, once again. And the New Testament reality is that once you're saved, 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light, he, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. How many of your sins were forgiven when you were saved? All of them. All of them. Past? Mm -hmm. Present? Future? Yeah. All of the above. I don't have to say anything. They're going to answer. They, they answer yeah, for me. Which is okay. great, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> First John 2, I write you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven. Christian, when you are saved, your sins have been forgiven. Now, this principle is true. Should you be forgiving? Absolutely, right? Because we have been forgiven much, we should also be forgiven. But if somehow we don't, and you hold the grudge for a while on somebody and you don't forgive, you're not going to lose your salvation. That's not what this teaches. So what, what happened when this man's debt was canceled? I love this because there's a story, an earthly story, a true earthly story of a guy by the name of George Wilson. How many of you have heard the story of George Wilson? A few of you. George Wilson and his friend back in 1830 robbed a mail carrier truck. And in the process, a man was killed. And both of them were found, tried, found guilty of capital murder, and sentenced to hang for their crime. The thing is, George Wilson had a friend who knew Andrew Jackson, the president of the United States. And Andrew Jackson issued a pardon to George Wilson for capital murder. Only George Wilson refused the pardon. The government had no idea how to proceed. Nobody's ever refused a pardon before. What do we do? So they took the case to the court system, and it worked its way up all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And Chief Justice John Marshall wrote this. You think he has some biblical insight or understanding when he wrote this? Listen to this. A pardon is an act of grace proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of the laws, the government in the earthly case, God in a heavenly case, right? But delivery is, com is not completed without acceptance, and it may be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and we as a court find no power to force it upon him. What do you think happened to George Wilson, he was hanged. Now, now the key question, why was George Wilson hanged? He didn't accept the pardon, right? Mankind has the same problem as George Wilson. We have all sinned. We have broke God's laws, if you will, and we're guilty. We all deserve the death penalty. But God sent his son to die on the cross for the sins of the world. That's why John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away some of the sins of some of us in certain conditions and cases, right? No, you got to know your Bible. He took away the sins of the world. And that's why John can write in 1 John that Jesus was the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Christ died for sin. As such, God has canceled the debt of every single person on the face of the earth. You see that? The servant knew it. His debt was canceled. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He pardoned the world of sin. So remember what I said at the beginning, this universalism is a, is a big lie? Well, if he canceled everybody's sin, why doesn't everybody go to heaven? And it's very simple because they don't receive 
the pardon. 1 Thessalonians 5, they perish. No, 1 Thessalonians 2. No, 2. 2 Thessalonians 2. That's why I have notes so I can remember where all these references are. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and thus be saved. So this isn't a picture of salvation. It's a picture of redemption in this parable that God has paid for the sins of the world. Isn't that cool? It's very cool. Love it. All right, Jeff, let's go to the parable of the workers in the vineyard. <sighs> you need a sip of water or anything? Uh, I'm good. Okay. Maybe I do. This is another long one, so we're, we'll have to just kind of paraphrase okay. our way through this one. Um, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who goes out early in the morning, 6 a.m., to get workers. He agrees to pay them a denarius for a day's wage. About the third hour, he goes out again, that's about 9 a.m., and he says, I will pay you whatever is right. And then he says the sixth and the ninth hour, that's 12 and 3, and then the eleventh hour at 5. And then he, when evening comes, verse 8, I'm sorry, Matthew 20 is where we're, where we're at, verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard says, call the workers together, and he begins to pay them. But he starts with the last first, right? And what does he pay the last workers who only worked an hour? The same thing, a denarius. And so those who were first begin to grumble. Isn't that just like us? Just like us. They begin to grumble. And in fact, uh, the question before this was Peter in Matthew 19 saying, we've left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? Right? Was he looking for just an equal share of the inheritance or was he looking for maybe a little bit more when he asked Jesus that question? He was looking for a little bit more, wasn't he? And that's the context of this parable. And the landowner basically says, these are the men that hired, worked, oh no, that's the, the guys complaining Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? They agreed, didn't they? And so take your pay and go. If I want to give the man who I hired last the same as you, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. So this is about envy, about not comparing yourself to others. How many of you in your workplace know what your coworkers are working in comparison to what you're making? I'm guessing if we went around the table, I see some smiles. You probably all know oh, that guy at the end, he's making a little bit more than I am. That's unfair, right? And that's the attitude that well, he's... Glad you brought that up. <laughs> we'll deal with well, it later. I, I'm not making anything. No, no, so well, I know yeah, that's it, true. That's yeah. true, all right. So, but that's the attitude that we tend to take to the workplace, right? Yeah. All right. So that's, but I think that's the secondary kind of principle or, or interpretation of this. I think the primary interpretation that many say it's, it is, and I agree in this case, that it's truly about salvation, right? If you accepted Christ as a young person and worked for God and toiled for him all your life, your inheritance is going to be exactly the same as the thief on the cross. Remember the story of the thief on the cross? Now, what was his, did he spend his life serving God? We don't know much about this guy, right? But he's being crucified as a criminal, so probably not. But remember what he says? He says, the, the first guy over here says, you know, Jesus, get us down from, if you are the son of man, get us down from here. Did he believe in Jesus? No. The second thief says, you know, basically, he tells the other guy, shut up. We deserve our punishment, right? This is Jeff's paraphrase version of this story. <laughs> by the way. And uh, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So think about this. This is simple faith, right? Even though they're both about to die, he believed that this guy, Jesus, was who he says he was and had the power to bring him into the kingdom, even though they're both about to die. And so Jesus says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. He was saved. He gets the same inheritance as we do. Now, have you, you know, the crowns that are talked about in Scripture? Mm -hmm. Now, there's, there's five crowns talked about in Scriptures. The crown of, uh, the incorruptible crown, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of life, the crown of glory, and the crown of righteousness. And there are many 
teachings that kind of say that, uh, you know, these are only given out to certain kinds of Christians. You have to meet certain criteria in order to get a certain crown, right? Or that some people's crowns are going to be bigger, some are going to have more jewels, some are going to have whatever. Have you ever seen anybody wearing more than one crown at one time? I, I haven't either, right? So I think these five crowns that are talked about in Scripture are actually one crown, and it's just described in different ways. Think about this. Who gets, who's righteous? Every single believer. So who should get the crown of righteousness? Every single believer. Who will be glorified as a Christian? All of us will be glorified as Christians. So who should get the crown of glory? Who has life? Life eternal. All Christians have life. So who should get the crown of life? So I'm not so worried about how many there are. I think there's one crown. And if you turn to Revelation chapter 4, we actually see the picture of the church and these 24 elders. I think they represent the church in some way. And they have their crowns on their heads up in heaven before the tribulation, by the way. So I'm a strong pre-trib rapture guy. We get our crowns at the rapture. And when we're in heaven at the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, but what do these guys do with their crowns in Revelation 4? Do you remember? Yeah, they lay them at the feet of Christ. It's like they're saying, Lord, you're rewarding me for the righteous things I'd done while I was in the body. But if you understand the parable of the vine and the branches, you know that you can produce no righteousness on your own, but only that which Christ bears in you. I think we're going to recognize that. Christ, you just rewarded me for your righteousness. And so I think we take the crown and we lay it at his feet. And we say, I'm not so worried about the reward, because my reward is the rewarder. Amen? So I think we all get the same inheritance. And by the way, the back of the book says, to him who overcomes, he will inherit all this. The new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, streets of gold, all of that stuff. To him who overcomes. And who is it that overcomes? According to John, only he that believes that Jesus is the Christ. Right? So if you're saved, you're an overcomer, and you will be part, you will receive an inheritance. The back of the book declares it. Sounds like good news. It is good news. Yeah. All right, Jeff, let's go to the sheep and goat judgment. This is a big one. This is a big one. So you know that I love to teach on the end times. I know. So this is one of those that um, I have dealt with quite a bit uh, over the years as I've taught on the end times, because this is actually not a parable. Okay, I know it's listed as a parable often in the lists of parables, but I want you to, we'll just read the very beginning of it because you guys are familiar with this. We'll paraphrase it again because it's long, but I'm going to read the beginning and see if there's any parable language here, right? So we're in Matthew 25 and it says this, verse 31, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will sh separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Well, now there's a metaphor, right? Sheep and goats and a shepherd. There's symbolic language there, clearly. But does this sound like a parable to you? When the Son of Man comes on his glory? That's the second coming of Christ. So we know when this event happens. It's at the second coming. All right, so now some of the details. Um, I think you guys remember, you know, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. And Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and so on? And, uh, and then those who didn't help him, they go away into the fire, but those um, that did good enter, go into eternal life. So some will say, well, does that mean we can work our way into heaven by doing unto the least of these? Or is there something we're missing here? Well, what did we talk about earlier is the criteria for entering the kingdom of heaven. Salvation, righteousness, right? All right, look at verse 37 and look at verse 46. What does God call the sheep, the good ones that did good deeds? He calls them righteous. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we do all these things, right? And at the end, but the righteous to eternal life. So they're called righteous. What's the only way to become righteous in God's economy? And that is through faith in Christ, right? So we know the sheep are believers, 
believers that will be there when Christ returns to earth. Right? When he comes to earth, he will separate who's ever left the good from the bad, the good, the righteous, will go into his kingdom, the bad don't. All right, so you have a handout. One of the handouts is this summary, then, of several of the Matthew parables that are immediately preceding this story of the sheep and the goats. So we're going to cover these really quick. So there's about six of them that these parables are just like the sheep and goat judgment that is going to come, a literal event that's going to come. But he's told them in parable form about this six times. And you decide whether or not he's describing the same event. So we know these, the parable of the weeds. Every one of these parables, by the way, has a good, and then something happens to the good, has the bad, and something happens to the bad, just Mm -hmm. like the sheep and the goats. Here we go. So there's good seed that's brought into the barn, into the kingdom of the father, and there's the weeds. What happens to them? They're thrown into the firing furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we're going to see that over and over again, right? The net, good fish, bad fish. The good fish come into the basket. The bad fish are thrown out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The parable of the wedding banquet. There's good and there's the bad. The good come into the wedding banquet. Now, is there an actual event that is a wedding banquet in God's plan for the end of the age. What is that called? Do you remember? The marriage supper of the Lamb. That's right. And I think that's what he's referring to here. Uh, the bad get tied hand and foot and get thrown out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The master and the servant. We have faithful and wise servants. We have wicked servants. And the wicked servants are sent away where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The parable of the ten virgins. There's five wise and five foolish. The five wise go into the wedding banquet once again. There's that banquet. And the five foolish, well, the door is shut, and they're not allowed in. And then the parable of the talents. We have the good and faithful servant, and we have the wicked and the lazy servant. The good servants come and share into the master's happiness. The bad servants are thrown out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you can see in the other column, there's a time reference there of when all this happens. Well, guess what? It's at the harvest, at the end of the age, at an unknown hour, at midnight, which is kind of an interesting reference. Some actually believe that Jesus will return at his second coming at midnight, probably Jerusalem time, I guess. I don't know. But. <laughs> and the last one, the master returns after the long time. Well, do those seem to match or parallel the sheep and the goat judgment? Yeah, I think they're saying the exact same thing. So I think these six parables, we have the interpretation. And the interpretation is this, that they all represent the sheep and the goat judgment. Cool. All right, so when does the sheep and goat judgment happen? When Jesus returns. Now, I mentioned earlier, just briefly, that I believe that the church is going to be raptured out prior to the tribulation. Uh, It's the view that I believe best fits Scripture, and there's about a dozen reasons why I believe that, but we, we won't have time to go on. But if we're been raptured up to heaven, and we are in heaven during the tribulation period, and we're returning with Christ when he returns to earth, Revelation 19, and the armies of heaven were following him, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Who is that? That's us. That's the church. Each riding on his own white horse. Did you know you get your own white horse? Do you guys know that? You get your own white horse. Mine's going to be named Thunder. Hmm. I don't, I don't know if I get to name the horse or not. Maybe his name will be Snowflake or something. <clears throat> I want mine to be named Thunder. But you get your own white horse, and we come back with him. So if the parable of the talons, now listen closely. If the parable of the talons is about the sheep and the goat judgment, okay, which is when Jesus returns and takes the people of the earth, of which the church is not part of, right? And he separates the sheep from the goats, and the sheep are the wise, I'm sorry, the good and faithful servants. Remember what he says to the good and faithful servants? Well done, good and faithful servants. Well done, my good and faithful servant. So church, are you actually going to hear those words spoken to you 
Or are you going to be, as, as a sheep who survived the seven-year tribulation and are being separated out as Jesus returns, or are you going to hear those words being spoken to the sheep that you're not a part of? Do you see what I'm saying? I know it's taught this way all the time. And I want to hear on that day when my Lord returns, well done, my good and faithful servant, right? And it's, it's not wrong per se, but I want you to understand this parable that actually those words are spoken to the sheep of the sheep of the goat judgment. I plan to be up in heaven watching all that unfolds in the tribulation from the bleacher seats and coming down on my white horse on with Christ on thunder. On thunder, yeah. yeah. Cool. It's a lot to take in, isn't it? I thought so. Yeah. So do you guys get that, that we won't actually be the ones that are that he's speaking those words to. It's kind of like in a couple, there's a couple other parables that are of the wedding banquet and, and uh, there are the invited guests to the wedding banquet. You're not part of the invited guests either. I know it's taught that way as well. You're the bride. Does the bride get invited to her own wedding banquet? No, she's the guest of honor. You, church, will be the guest of honor at that wedding banquet. Isn't that cool? All right. Wow. All right, Jeff. Let's uh, keep it moving to the parable of the sower. This is a one I love. I love the parable of the sower. Mm-hmm. We've got four different types of seed. Seed one is um, falls the on a hard path. I think Satan snatches that away, doesn't it? He does. Yep. So, so we know the four seed, right? And the first seed doesn't grow. Yep. Doesn't germinate. Doesn't germinate. The interpretation. So I'm in Luke, by the way. I'll, we'll use the Luke. I'm sorry, the Luke version in Luke eight. So this is this is one of these parables that's in all three gospels: Matthew, and Mark, and Luke. I'm sorry, I said this before. Not all three gospels. There's actually there's four. four. four yeah. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah. There's actually four gospels. But I, I was going to do this at the end. Do you know that John doesn't have any parables in it? John has no parables in it. So when I say all three, I meant the three that have parables in it. Okay, that's it. Nice save. Yeah, good. I yeah. <laughs> the first seed doesn't germinate, doesn't grow. It's snatched up, right? The birds come and eat it. The interpretation is Satan takes away what's on the heart. All right, the second one falls in some rocky soil. And when it comes up, the plant withers because there's no moisture. Right? And the interpretation is that those that are on the rocks are the ones who receive the word with joy, and when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe. Now, we've got to decide whether or not this seed number two is a believer or not a believer. All right? Because some teach that seeds number two and three are unbelievers. Right? But did this second seed, did it germinate? Did it start to grow? Is there life from the dead seed? Yes, there is. I think that's the picture of regeneration, of being born again. You have a life from a dead seed. But this is what happens. When the time of testing comes, they fall away. Oh, well, there's that fall away thing again, right? Oh, you, so you can be a true Christian, but fall away? No, we just talked about that, right? We have assurance of salvation, so it's impossible. This is one of these places where a little Greek understanding goes a long way. And by the way, if you don't know Greek, right, it's all Greek to me, there's a great app that you can do this right on your phone. It's called Blue Letter Bible. You can click on a verse. You can get all the Greek words and all the Greek word definitions, and it's really neat, and it's a great tool. This Greek word for fall away is episteme, episteme, and it means to withdraw, to shrink back. Well, what's the picture? The seed that falls on the rock they receive it with joy, they believe, and they grow, but then persecution comes, a time of testing comes, and they withdraw, they shrink back, right? Well, if you go, if you are born again, and you go into your office setting, and you say, hey guys, I got saved, I now believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, what might be the response of some of your fellow co-workers? Oh, you're not going to become one of those you know, Bible thumping, you know, whatever, whatever, you might experience some persecution and you might naturally shrink back, withdraw, fall away, right? It's not that you're losing your salvation. It's that you are no longer letting your light shine before men. You're hiding it under a bushel. 
right? You've withdrawn. Number three, another seed fell amongst the thorns, which grew up with it, and it got choked out by all these plants. The interpretation, the seed that fell amongst the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries and riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. Boy, that sure sounds like some believers I know. In fact, not only do I think number two and number three are saved, I think that's much of the church, right? They're shrunk back and they need to grow and bear fruit. They're choked out by the cares of this world, right? And need to be the fourth one that falls in good soil and grows and produces a fruit 30, 60, 90 times. Now, God wants you to be a fruitful Christian, right? But there is this phrase that's out there, if there's no fruit, there's no root, right? You've probably heard that. There's no fruit, it means then you must not be saved. Are you saved by fruit or by faith? You're saved by faith. My own personal testimony is I had an active and growing faith in high school. I, went, I knew I was saved. I was saved. I went off to college. I tell people I stuck God in my pocket. And for about 10 years, I stuck, God was in my pocket. I didn't, I wasn't bearing any fruit for God. I still knew I was saved. I still remembered to pray every once in a while. But I was bearing no fruit in my life, right? And then I got into a Bible study and then another Bible study. And I started to grow in faith and hopefully bearing fruit for God. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of people and they have a very similar testimony. So I think we're saved by faith, not by fruit, right? And I don't, I, I don't care for the line, if there is no fruit, then there is no root, because you can be, let me read you one more verse. Second Peter 1.8 says this, about unfruitful, being an unfruitful Christian. And he basically says, he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you know, he's, it's basically the same list that's right before this passage. And then he says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which to me says, you can be an ineffective and unproductive Christian, a fruitless Christian, because you're saved by faith, not by fruit. So I think that's number two and number three. Now, most commentators agree number one's not saved, number four is saved. There's some debate about whether two and three are saved, but I think it's a clear picture. They are saved. There was germination, new life from the dead seed.